Hello and welcome to the latest Colmer Hallow Dream podcast. I'm here with Ruth. Good afternoon. Um, we have got a, a fun fin filled podcast uh, for you today. A little bit on the fly, but this is because we are just about to interview Laura McAllister, which is going to be a brilliant interview. She is someone who lobbied to get Welsh women's football off the ground and was one of the first people to actually ever play in a competitive game for uh, the, the women's Welsh football team. So we're very excited to chat to her and uh, very much looking forward to it. It would be remiss of us, however, not to have a quick chat about the, the weekend's matches that have just gone by, just because there's a hell of a lot to talk about. So we will start, I think, with Newport County. <laughs> your, your number two team all of a sudden, I'm, I'm after your I'm... Boxing Day adventures there. <laughs> um, well, what a game. What a game. And just it, it's amazing how the Cup just throws up these stories yeah, isn't it like folks at home they obviously would have had a different comment commentary to what we had here but actually the american commentary team um when dolan came on actually talked about they told oh, the story this would be a great fa cup story this is exactly what the cup's all about and of, of course it played out yeah. exactly to script um and, and fair dues, it's another example of them digging in and just seeing it through. Well done. I agree. I thought I didn't. I was unfortunately watching Newcastle. Uh, I was going to say play Watford. I mean, they were on the pitch at the same time. Um, I, I was watching that and switched over for the last 10 minutes because I was going to smash my TV up um, and then watch the highlights afterwards. From what I saw, Newport were well in the game. And certainly in the last 10 minutes, I thought, were you know obviously were fully going for it, but actually played a lot of good football. They were just humping it long. It was quite measured, and they were moving the ball side to side as you know as they've you know become known for this year. It was brilliant. Yeah, it was it was a great tie actually. The whole the whole game was good, um, and the the crowd was brilliant. And just yeah, it was a proper FA Cup tie. Just everything that everything that those should be. Uh, it was a great afternoon. No, I agree. And I like, like I say, I switched on for the last ten minutes and saw uh, saw the goal. And my wife Joy had completely zoned out and was at one point just like, "Oh, you said Newcastle were going to lose." And next thing you know, you're cheering because they've drawn. No, no, <laughs> I've, I've switched. Um, but it was a it was a brilliant uh, brilliant goal, well worked as well. Yep. The, you know, I know this, there was a bit of a scrappy finish in the end, but the way it all kind of came about and. The way the ball was kind of pinged forward and well controlled, and it was just—it was brilliant. I'm absolutely delighted for them, and the, the way they all celebrated with the fans at the yeah. end, like you say, that's kind of what what the cup is all about. Bit concerned that Semenya's been called. Yeah, back it's, to it's a shame that. Yeah, I think it shows how you know, how how well he's done at Newport, though. Mm-hmm. Like, I know it's not great, but it's a, it's a compliment to see how well he's done, um, and how much he's kind of improved. That they they feel that there's a value mm-hmm. to him being back there. But obviously a big loss for Newport. Yeah. I don't really want to talk about the draw because there's, there's a hurdle before before they get to that. Oh, I Hopefully. want to talk about it. <laughs> oh, no, no I, it's one of my tempting fate things. I will talk about it. <laughs> uh, they have, for those of you who haven't seen or, well, will have seen by the time this goes out, the draw has just been done today. And if New, uh, Newport beat Middlesbrough in the replay, they have a home tie against Manchester City, which would be incredible. <laughs> Absolutely that is, amazing. I mean, it is the ultimate glamour of the cup. Yeah, that, at the minute, yeah. yeah. Yeah, League yeah. Two. And you put the lowest ranked team in the left. That depends what happens with Barnet. Barnet, that's yeah. true, that's true. Yeah. Even so, um, for, for, for those two teams to still be going, through, going, going on, I think is brilliant. And, you know, for Man City to maybe end up going to Rodney Parade, I think would be amazing. 
we can we can but dream. Yes, we can. That would be a brilliant tie. So fingers crossed Newport uh, in the replay, which because we are doing this uh, as we go, I have no idea when it is. But we will be watching that replay and uh, and we will bring you some sort of update from that, I, I don't doubt. Um, Swansea also had a very good result in the Cup. Yeah, they had, they played very well from what I saw, actually. Very measured kind of organized but attacking yeah. football clinical clinical that's a good that's a good word for it Thank yeah you. <laughs> um i think they they just had a one of their best games in a while by the sound of it just everything in, sort of clicked yeah. for them yeah no I, I i've only seen the goals but um it was worth just seeing that just to see selena's goal mm-hmm. alone it was unbelievable strike from like fully 30 yards i would say um a great great goal so yeah brilliant performance and you know we were looking their next draw they have got either Barnet or Brentford um, and, you'd, and you'd have to say that they've got a bloody good chance of getting through that um, and then like we, we've just looked at the draw together now and Ruth pointed out that how many teams? There's a maximum of six premiership teams in the last eight an absolute max. So I mean you're looking then at, at quarterfinals last eight mm-hmm. Swansea could come up against you know, any one of, uh, you know, six teams. There's still a lot of other sides mm. left in there and there's a lot of potential for upsets. You know, Newport are going to beat Man City <laughs> for a starter. Um, and I think and, and of those teams that are left from the Premier League, yes, you've got Man United and Chelsea, but one of them is going to go out. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you've got Man City. After that, none of the kind of big teams, so to speak, are, are kind of still left. No, I, I, I don't can't imagine that Newport, um, Swansea would be particularly concerned about you know, in going further and having a, a game against Watford or Crystal Palace or whatever in, in one of the next rounds. So as long as you avoid Man City, Man United, Chelsea, whichever one of those goes, gets gets through, moving forward, mm-hmm. you know, there's a bloody good chance of, of yeah. them having a game at Wembley this season, which would be amazing. It would be. We are very much getting ahead of ourselves Yes, you are, now. a little bit. As long as you've won the FA Cup. <laughs> Yeah, but what you know, what a great performance and clinical and efficient, and I think it's great to see some championship clubs who are kind of going for it and recognizing yeah. the value of what they could achieve this year. I do think that's something that's worth mentioning. Actually, the um, the attitude of some Premiership teams towards the FA Cup, I think it's actually really important. The clubs that have taken it seriously and the ones. Uh, particularly those in the sort of upper half of the championship that are really producing some great football. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think it's important that people who perhaps only ever watch premiership games, you know, watched Newport at the weekend yeah. um, or saw how um, Millwall played and, you know, just saw saw some good football from, yeah. t- from teams that they might, might not sh- you know, seen. shirk away from you. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, Derby, I think, yeah. are a side who've got a great chance Again, I'm not suggesting they're going to win it, but I think they've got because they have got the players they've got. And well, take the Welsh bias aside, but you know Wilson and Lawrence, and they've got a lot of you know experienced, talented players. You know, people like Dave Nugent plays for them, yeah. and um, Waghorn. I think they've got up front as well who scored one of the goals. Mm-hmm. They've got you know something about them. Yeah. So uh, I say one of the goals, the goal. But um, I think there's a few t- teams that with the right draw and you know a good day could go a lot further than than expect. And I think it's a shame I was saying to you that like Everton, for example, you know, why the hell didn't they yeah. 
put their full, full strength full strength team out. And they did put a good side out, to be fair, but they didn't seem that bothered. Watford, I know they beat us, but that's not an achievement. But, I mean, they made 11 changes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why you wouldn't be going kind of full yeah. tilt if, if you're in that position. But uh, maybe they will from this point onwards. Now, Crystal Palace, again, another yeah. side who've got a chance. So it'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also worth pointing out this weekend that Wrexham's got a goal. They scored a goal. I know. I mean, it is bunting out day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they scored a goal. Um, Crack open the Wrexham lager and let's yeah, go. We'll be away. Um, well, I mean, more importantly, the win, rather obviously. Oh, absolutely. Um, and hopefully this has, you know, put a little air in the tyres, yeah, to use so. that metaphor again. I think they uh, need that. But yeah, they, it was needed. It was needed urgently. So fingers crossed that that's a move in the right direction. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, we've, we've talked about their recent, their, their upcoming fixtures. They have got some tough games mm-hmm. coming up. Um, and after, I think it was six or five and a half games or something like that with no goals and obviously no wins, um, to get to grind mm-hmm. out a win against Maidenhead, who were, I think were, you know, fairly lowly in the table, 18th or 20th or something, for for them to have managed to grind that out when they really needed to yeah. is, a, is, a, is a positive sign. So hopefully this can mm-hmm. spur them on a little bit and get them, get them get moving. Them moving. Yeah. And some great ties in the Welsh Cup oh over, my goodness. The, over the weekend. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that Bangor-Carnarvon game looks yeah. like it was quite an, exactly. quite an event. Quite an epic, yeah. <laughs> um, and I saw, again, sticking with my bias, I saw Barrytown 1-3-2, mm-hmm. and the winning goal in that game was quite something as well a bit of a long range effort so uh, yeah some more great football knocking around I think the the cup competitions this year have really offered a lot and the the Nathaniel Cup what was it, is it Nathaniel yeah. Cup yeah. Nathaniel J MG MG, MG Cup. Cup that's yeah. it that 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 I saw the second half of that game and that was a that was a great game mm-hmm. and the fact that the first division side uh, Clydach uh, really gave Cardiff met a hell of a going a hell of a going over sorry in terms of the you know the, the contest mm-hmm. they offered them was really encouraging to see so you know the Welsh Football League yep. uh, the Welsh League sorry is offering some great football this year and the you know the the battle for the top of the table is something we've talked about on our last few pods so yeah it's really really exciting times at the minute yep and Bale was back yesterday and he scored he scored a very nice little goal actually yeah. um, Ramsey got an assist I saw as well for, for Arsenal in that game I just want to give him a big hug. He is being so damn professional yeah. with everything that's been thrown at him. Yeah. I mean, how Arsenal can feel is the right move to let him walk. It just astounds me. It blows me. my mind. But the fact that he, you wouldn't know that anything was going on when you look at his no. play. Just so on it, so professional. Just it's, it's bizarre very proud to me, of him, actually. Still, how many times we've had this conversation, but it's bizarre to me that he is you know being released in in that sense because i mean he played on the weekend he played very well he was basically the only player with any sort of cohesive movement and uh, and he knitted their play together very very well Ozil came on just looked completely not asked i just don't know why you want someone who's been at the club for such a long time to to go for nothing mm-hmm. but the, the you know the plus side on a personal level for us and him is he's I think he's going to be brilliant in Italy I think when Emery can Shan whatever he's called is is still having a part to play for Juventus I mean Rambo is miles ahead of him so for for that to to be a thing is is a big big bonus I think so yeah I'm looking forward to that well I think that is the end of our current roundup of Welsh football um you are now about to hear our interview with Laura McAllister 
she is an incredible woman who has um, achieved a huge amount in her life through working uh, in sport to politics. And this is something you're going to hear all about in our interview. So we hope you enjoy it. And thank you very much for listening. Hello and welcome to another Coleman Had a Dream interview. We are here uh, with Laura McAllister and Ruth as ever. Hello. <laughs> um, we have got a lot to talk about with Laura. As I, as I, We've just been chatting with Laura before we started recording and one of the big things I'd like to do is a little introduction for everyone but the, the list of things that you have achieved is uh, fairly colossal. So um, we will just leave it to say that you were a, a CBE, International Captain of Wales footballer, uh, top-rate politician, and you have more degrees than I have jumpers. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Really looking forward to it. Um, so to start off with, um, I'd love to just know how you got into to sport in general, be it football or, or anything else for that matter. Well, yes, it, and it wasn't football in all honesty. I was a kind of absolutely mad sports kid um, who loved everything and every single sport. And although football was my own big sport because I was a massive Cardiff City fan from a very young age, and I'm sure you'll want to go there later about yeah. how I got into that, but... Um, it wasn't really the thing at that time, obviously, for, for girls to be able to play in a structured way for clubs or indeed, you know, certainly not leading to international level. So whilst I'd always played football with boys, um, I've got a younger brother and a lot of male cousins. And in the, in the the I grew up in Bridgend uh, in South Wales and my uh, family lived in the Llinvy Valley in my stag. So although I played with a lot of boys in the street and in the playground, um, I never really saw it as a option, really. I couldn't envisage, for example, joining a, a girls' club because there wasn't really a, a girls' club that I knew of and I didn't really have anything like that to aspire to. So I concentrated all my energies, really, on another sport. So um, my first sport was athletics, actually, and I was a, pre- I was a pretty decent middle-distance runner, but n- nothing more than good club level, really. I don't think I could have ever gone much further in that. Yeah. But it served me in good stead then when I went on to play football. And I, and I played hockey and netball at junior international level. So I was kind of a bit of an all-rounder, really. Oh, wow. You know, I loved sport. I would have played anything, cricket, you know, rugby. Rugby less so, because I was quite a slight build, you know, so it wasn't really my thing. But um, any sport, you know, I'd ever go at, and I loved them all. I was reading, Laura, that your, your first sort of organised football was, was when you were at college in, in London. So how did that come about? Because, it, it, you know, I'm sure there were opportunities for you to be doing hockey or netball or track or something at college so why move into the football at that point well i I, i've been always been a mad football fan really you know both in terms of playing and supporting and it was always my dream really to play in a more structured environment but as i said growing up in south wales there just weren't the opportunities really at that time and i kind of closed my mind to there ever being a possibility really of playing in a competitive league and possibly, you know, hoping for a pathway to playing at a higher level. And I think what was interesting was I really didn't know whether I was any good or not, you know, in relation to other girls and women, because I'd never really played with girls, you know, yeah. I'd only played with boys. Um, and I, I knew I was I was a decent player because the boys would always pick me for their teams, you know, so... <laughs> 
um, it was a great test, obviously. You know, they, half the time I don't think they noticed I was a girl because, you know, if you could play football, it was just whoever you wanted on your side. Yeah. So I kind of knew I was a half-decent player, but of course I didn't know the standards of girls' and women's football. So it was quite hard, really, to judge whether I'd be good enough to play for a, a decent side. So when I went to London to university, I went to the London School of Economics, um, and just out of the blue, really, I thought, oh, shall I, you know, shall I look to play netball or hockey whilst I'm in London? And then it came to my attention, I can't even remember how, that there was a really good team uh, called Millwall Lionesses, which are one of the top women's teams at the time. Um, and I got in touch with them and they invited me down to train with them. And even that wasn't really, you know, of the kind of standard that we have now in terms of structured women's football. But but it was, you know, it was decently organised, some decent coaches and obviously some really talented players. Um, and, you know, I trained a few times with them and I certainly wasn't the best in the group. You know, I, I kind of found my level, I think, which was probably, um, you know, in the middle of that kind of ability range. But, you know, I had a couple of games for them, got got fitter again and got football fit. Um, but I didn't really take it that seriously at university. It was only when I came back to Cardiff after leaving uh, university that I really kind of decided, look, I'm going to give this a proper go, you know, and I, I realised how much pleasure it gave me, you know, playing regularly for, for Cardiff City then. So was that the natural move then? How did that come about, going from Millwall to, to joining Cardiff? Well, just just uh, logistics, really. And I finished my degree in London, um, whenever that was, in the late 1980s. And I came back to Cardiff and straight away I looked for a club locally. Well, I came back to Bridgen, but I looked for a club locally and the nearest club was, was in Cardiff. And um, I was put in touch, I think, I can't remember how I got hold of their numbers, but I was put in touch with, I think probably through Cardiff, local authority when I sort of asked them if there were any clubs around um, with two real kind of figures from the women's game, uh, Karen Jones and Michelle Adams, who ran Cardiff City Ladies and in fact still involved with the club, you know, they still run a lot of the administration around the club, both of them are great coaches um, and they're good friends of mine now of course but um, I got in touch with them, they invited me along to a training session and and that was it really you know, I I realised that you know, this was a fabulous opportunity in a club that was extremely well run, that, that you know, was a pioneer club, really, because it had been founded in, I think, 1975. Oh, and wow. that, that's quite important because obviously, there were, you know, there was, weren't really women's clubs at that time. Yeah. So Car- Cardiff really stood out. They were well organised, they were professional, you know, they had proper kits, proper resources, really. Um, it wasn't luxurious by any means, <laughs> but, you know, it was a properly run club, you know, that played on one of the park pitches in Ely in Cardiff um, and I went along to train um, got on really well with the girls you know my sta- the standard was obviously right for me and uh, you know I never looked back you know apart from playing for a little while and I didn't play properly for them uh, for Everton in Liverpool when I moved up there I played for Cardiff all my career then. oh wow so what what were the the kind of challenges of getting that you know the the competitive games and stuff like that you know off the ground and travelling around for other matches and stuff like that? it must have been difficult and obviously a lot of it off your own back I imagine. Well, I think just to portray it accurately would be to say that it was a complete Cinderella sport, you know. Um, and I what I mean by that is it was completely ignored, you know. We were kind of in the background, in the scullery, as Cinderella was, you know, in the kitchen, because nobody took any notice, you know, of a, a group of women playing football. And yet there was some real ability, you know. And um, some of the players that I played with then were certainly as good as some of the girls who are playing for Wales and, and top clubs now. 
Um, they weren't coached as well. We, we weren't coached as well. And I think that showed probably in terms of technical prowess. But, but in terms of natural ability, there, there was definitely parallels. But, but the reality was nobody took much notice of us. You know, we had to kind of fight to get anything, you know, including a pitch, um, because it was regarded as a real oddity, uh, you know, an aberration that, that girls and women were playing football. I think we were fortunate in that we managed to get some support from Cardiff Council, who obviously were influential in terms of us getting onto their park pitches. Um, we always had a sponsor, as far as I can remember, but that tended to be somebody's work, you know, who would sponsor the shirts or, you know, another person's uncle who ran a business would uh, give us a set of bibs and balls. So, yeah. you know, we, we were never, we had to do a lot of fundraising, but we were never um, unable to play because of lack of resources. But but that was as much down to the determination of the girls who were there far before I joined them, you know, who'd really pioneered the development of, of women's football in Cardiff. And was that kind of like in a Welsh league or was it just other teams around Cardiff? No, it, it was always in an English league, which which is really interesting because in the, until the Welsh Women's Premier League, there'd only ever been, I think, junior football organised uh, for girls, uh, certainly in South Wales. And, you know, obviously the Welsh Women's Premier League is a fairly new phenomenon, and yeah. it's, you know, in its infancy in terms of development. So all of the top teams at that time, which were the, the likes of Cardiff City, uh, Barry Town, Tom Gwynlice, I think there was a team in Newport at the time as well, Newport Strikers, if I remember rightly. And then there were a couple of teams in uh, Newcastle Emlyn. There was a team in Swansea. Uh, there was a team, I think they were either Bangor or Carnarvon at the time. But, but really, you're talking about a handful of clubs and virtually yeah. all of them played outside Wales, you know, in England. We were probably, along with Barry, the best uh, team. Certainly Barry and Cardiff vied with each other in terms of, you know, the pole uh, position. And we, we all played in what I think at the time was called the Southwestern FA League. And so it went down as far as Cornwall. Oh, so wow. there was a lot of travelling. You yeah. know, we played Truro and teams like that, you know, which meant, you know, you'd be on a minibus for, you know, five or six hours each way. Um, so there were never any really local fixtures other than Barry, who were our you know big rivals, yeah. obviously in the league. And originally, I think it was Tom Gwynlice who then moved into Barry. Um, the 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 I'm interested, Laura, in the process. You were fairly instrumental um, in the setting up and working with the FAW towards an international team. Um, could you talk a little bit about how how that the genesis of that and the process of that? Yes, I mean, when I started playing, uh, there were some players who were a bit older than me who had played for Wales, but almost, you know, in an unofficial capacity. And the history of that's really interesting. I mean, I think Phil Stead has talked a little bit about this in some of his writing. And there's some work going on at the moment by a chap called John Carrier, who's trying to research the history of Welsh women's football. So, you know, historians know more about this than me. But, you know, my, my kind of understanding of it was that women had organised themselves um, and they, they, you know, managed to set up a structure which meant that they could play internationally. It wasn't sanctioned by the FA of Wales, though. So effectively, they had to beg, steal, and borrow for kit and for resource and coaching and right. travel, obviously. And basically, they paid for it all themselves. And you know, these girls were a bit older than me, but I remember talking to them about it. And they were obviously great players, you know, really, really good players. Um, and when they described the kind of hardships, really, and the effort they'd made to play for Wales, you know, I kind of said to them, well, haven't you ever asked the FAW to, you know, do more for the women's game? And they kind of said straight away, it won't happen. You know, we've never had a receptive audience there. It just won't happen. And 
I guess partly because, you know, I'm kind of a very stubborn person. <laughs> and secondly, because, you know, I, I can be quite political in that, you know, obviously that's the other side of my work. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, hang on a minute. They'll have to give us a good reason why they can't support a, um, a women's national team. So um, I, I certainly don't take responsibility for this, by the way, because there were people well before me who were much more influential. But um, I went along to see the then uh, chief exec or general secretary of the FA, Alan Evans, who... Um, who ended up being one of the greatest supporters of the women's game, but was very, very sceptical at that time. Uh, and Karen Jones and Michelle Adams, who were two of the stalwarts from uh, Cardiff City, and myself went along. We, we booked an appointment to see Alan. And I can remember going into his office in Westgate Street, the old FA headquarters. Yeah. And, you know, he was extremely suspicious of us, <laughs> is the best way of putting it. And I think I can say this because Alan turned out to be a good friend of mine and I've got a lot of time for what a lot of things that he did for, for football in Wales. Not all of them, but a lot of things he did for football. Um, and he was very sceptical. You know, he kind of looked at, at, at us when we presented the case for why the FA should, FAW should get involved. And he kind of said, well, why would we? You know, it's not of a high enough standard. Um, why would we want to enter a Welsh team if we're going to be thrashed in competitions? And I And I can remember saying something along the lines of, well, first of all, you don't know we'd be thrashed. And secondly, we've got to start somewhere, mm-hmm. which is pretty much how we how we did start, you know, because we were a very small nation. We had no structured history of competing in international football. There'd be no resource put into the game, really, other than that, which was sort of self-funded by um, the players and the clubs. So we didn't know how we would do, really. But, but I think deep down, we knew it would be tough. But, you know, you've got to start somewhere. Absolutely. And, and what gives me the greatest pleasure now um, is seeing how far we've come, really, you know, and seeing the girls now like Sophie Ingle and, you know, Tash Hard and Jess Fishlock, uh, you know, how much they've been able to benefit from those early steps that we made. And, you know, it's a long journey, isn't it, you know, for improvement. You never are able to enter journey at the most appropriate station for want of a better metaphor um you've got to start somewhere and you've got to spend a long time on that journey really until yeah. you get to a position where you know things look a bit rosier but in fairness to alan you know the one thing he did say at the end of our conversation which was pretty cordial was well look i haven't seen much women's football i'm going to come and watch you guys see what I think and you know who knows we might be able to do something and he was true to his word you know he came out he watched us he watched I think probably the other team was Tom Gwynlice at the time and he watched us play um, I think he was quite quietly surprised at the standard actually I think he'd expected it not to be as strong as it was and, and actually changed his mind very quickly you know within the space of months he decided it was something that quite rightly the FAW should get involved with Absolutely. and so he entered the team into the um, World Cup qualifiers and of course you know in those days even in UEFA and FIFA standards uh, it, it certainly wasn't as uh, competitive or, or well structured or funded well funded as it is now and so we entered uh, a qualifying group we were in a really tough group from the outset I mean off the top of my head I think we were in the group with Germany Croatia and Switzerland um, and off we went really on this great adventure, you know, and that was, you know, my first cap. It was, I mean, it depends how you classify caps because obviously those were the first official caps, but a lot of, a lot of girls older than me had played for the unofficial Wales team, yeah. you know, but that was the first official uh, qualify, qualifying campaign. And in fairness to Alan Evans, you know, he, he treated us well. Um, we didn't have the same level of support as the men initially, but we, you know, we, we flew comfortably. We stayed in decent hotels. You know, we, we probably didn't have the right kit 
that you know in terms of fit and so on but we had proper welsh kit and all of these things were baby steps towards the kind of uh, situation that we have now so you know i'm delighted that things have moved on as fast as they have of course it's uh, just speaking of the baby steps there i had not realized up until the weekend uh sorry last tuesday when obviously wales played italy that that was the time that the women have had their their own names on the back of the shirt and i, I and i don't know why that yeah. had never registered with me in wales but like you talk about baby steps is what a like a bizarre almost baby step to kind of have to go through still at this yeah. at this late well, stage you I know? think you know without going into the the detail of why that didn't happen sooner because uh, I'm not sure I I know the answers to that um I don't I think we've got to be careful you know now that the women's game is in such a healthy position in Wales and elsewhere that we think the battle's been won you know because yeah. I think we all know in women's sport that you know it's a it's a constant battle um and there is there is still a big disparity, you know, in terms of funding and support for women's the women's game in virtually every nation. I mean, probably, you know, if you you take the example of the USA, which you guys know a lot about, then um, there are some really big players in US football or US soccer, you know, who've had to fight some quite significant battles over, yeah. you know, the pay and the contracts that the US players get and that's ironic given the women are much better than the men in the u.s yeah. you know and, and culturally obviously you don't have in the u.s the same disparity in terms of schools football and colleges football and so on that we have so you know i, I think you can become complacent and it's really important to realize that we're not there yet you know with the women and girls game we've got a long way to go to even begin to catch up with the men's game and that's why uh, we must be vigilant and we must have a voice, really. We must keep campaigning, you know, because there's no reason at all why women and girls should be treated differently. No, I, I could not agree anymore. And, and it's, it's, it's things like not having the names on the back of the shirt, which makes you realise how much of a fight is still left to be, is still left to be fought. Yeah, and I guess those things are symbolic, aren't they, really? You know, they sound very small, but it's all symbolic. You know, it's about the level of sports science you have, you know, whether the players are always comfortable with the uh, environment they're in, their kit, you know. And and again, you know, you, we, we joke about the names on the backs of the shirt now, but, you know, for a long time when I was playing, uh, we, we wore men's-sized shirts, yeah. you know, and that was until recently, you know, which is absolutely ludicrous. Um, you know, if you're a slight build, you know, which, which I was, you know, you ended up having your, your sleeves flapping over your hands, <laughs> you know, and, you know, however much you tucked your shirt in, yeah. you know, it'd be, it wouldn't, fit you properly and you know these are technical requirements for sport obviously so uh, you know I, I it's not long ago i remember the wales team complaining that they you know they didn't have the right fit shirt so you know let's not get complacent yeah. about where we are now or even though we've come a long way of course what do you think the the biggest hurdle looking forward is laura i think it's there's probably a few, in my opinion. Um, I think we need to get women closer to running the game. Uh, and I mean in, in governance terms, particularly. You know, we still have a situation where there simply aren't, aren't enough women in positions of authority and power anywhere. You know, we, t- we can take Wales or we can take England, for that matter. You know, we can take the US even. Even in the more enlightened countries, you know, where there isn't a kind of cultural obstacle to women's football, like Scandinavian countries or maybe Holland, we still have only a handful of women involved in run, running the game. So, I, you know, I'm currently on the UEFA Women's Football Committee um, and I'm really enjoying that work. But again, it's telling that, you know, when we meet up, I think about, you know, half of the committee is female, half is male. 
Um, and I, you know, I'm not making a statement on that particularly, but what's telling is that if you talk to all of the other people there about uh, how their game is governed, uh, you'll find there are very, very few women on the uh, association councils or boards, uh, very few women in executive positions of authority and power. Um, and so, you know, you, you can only change things through power. And, uh, you know, this sounds a very simplistic political argument, but if you haven't got women there who are knowledgeable about the game, who are politically savvy, you know, because there's no big point being on a board if all you're going to do is toe the line of what's gone on before, yeah. you know, the, the whole point about being a board member or being having any influence or authority is that you try and change things for the better. So you need to be uh, confident, you know, you need to be assertive, you need to know your stuff because women need to know a lot more than men to be listened to. That's always been the case with uh, sport. Um, so it disappoints me really that we haven't got women close enough to run in the game across the world, you know, and, and that applies to Wales too. So I think there's that. But the other one is related to that and there's a obvious synergy between what I'm saying, which is that, you know, unfortunately we just don't have the resource in the women's game. I mean, even in countries like England, you know, where there is a massive amount of money poured into the game, if you put that alongside what the men's game gets developmentally and at top level, you know, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, mostly history and mostly commercial sponsorship. Uh, but, but you know, in our case in Wales, you know, there's still a huge disparity between how money is allocated to girls' football and boys' football and men's football and women's football. Um, and I think we've got to try and rebalance that to some degree. Uh, it's not as easy as just saying, right, you know, divide it in half and off you go, because, you know, there are lots of vested interests, there's professionalism in the uh, men's game, which doesn't exist to the same extent in the women's game. So we know there are differences, but, but equally, if we're serious about developing the women's game, then we've got to be more resource intensive, I think, in terms of how we invest in it. And was it wanting to tackle those things in Wales that, that got you involved with the FA Trust, Laura? And I mean, now you're director, part one of the directors of that. Yes, yes. I mean, I've always been really interested in grassroots football, you know, because obviously that's kind of my own background. And although I went on to play at the elite level, you know, for the national team, um, you know, I, I, without having had the opportunities to play with, you know, lads mainly, you know, in parks and on scruffy bits of turf around the area, then, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have had uh, a career, you know, in, in the game. So I've always been interested in that. And I've always been interested in coaching as well. Not that I'm a coach myself, because I'm not. And I've, I've never gone down that route. But I'm interested in how uh, an effective coaching resource can improve the game, really. And one of the obvious weaknesses when I was playing football was that we didn't have the right quality coaches. Um, you know, you look at the girls now and, you know, you look at somebody like, say, uh, uh, Sophie Ingle or I'm just trying to think Hayley Ladd or you know any of any uh, Kaylee Green and all of these players you can see how technically strong they are you can see how they've benefited from good coaching over the years both with their clubs and with Wales um, and you know and I, I feel very strongly that we've got to invest in that coaching resource really to improve things in the women's game so that's originally why I've been involved with the Trust for quite a long time now and uh, that's led me, obviously, to doing more with um, European governance through UEFA. And I guess you you guys, because you're football anoraks like me, know that <laughs> there was an attempt uh, to stand for election to FIFA Council as well uh, two years ago, which uh, was 
was scuppered through no fault of our own, actually. And we could talk about that if you like. But hopefully, you know, I still see that, you know, I, I still think there may be a possibility of making a contribution at that level some some point in the future. I was fascinated by that because I only the, the, you going for the FIFA role. I, I only found that out doing a bit of digging the last couple of days. Yeah, and it, it struck me as a bizarre thing that we have our own football federation, but we, you were scuppered by doing that because the person who was there at the time was English, despite that we're two kind of football federations. It just goes to show again, like we, when we've spoken to to lots of people involved in, in women's football. The, the kind of the same things kind of keep coming back. There's always seems to be an obstacle in the way. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it's never well, simple. That's true. And, you know, I mean, let's not go into the, you know, minutiae of that. But yes, we were scuppered because of what is effectively a gentleman's agreement, you know, and the emphasis yeah. on gentlemen uh, yeah. between the, the independent football associations of, of Great Britain and Northern Ireland that only, there would only be one place, which is a designated place for a FIFA vice president. Uh, from one of the associations of of, uh, uh, of the, the, within the UK, and of course that was ludicrous really at the time because these positions were for women; they'd never existed before. They were designated positions for women from any association across the UEFA. So that's over two hundred associations. And and what's interesting is that I think we could have won that election. You know, there were only two candidates: myself and um, a, a woman from Italy. Um, and once it became apparent that this uh, protocol would prevent my candidature and we we withdrew which i think was the right thing to do you know because it would have probably um got some backs up uh if we hadn't and i think you know the politics of football is very sensitive let's say very delicate so it was the right thing to do but you know we we could have had a position for a woman from wales on fifa council that would have been a really important development not just for us in wales but for the whole of the UK, because there would have been common issues with Scotland and Northern Ireland and England, which I, I would hope I'd be able to represent, and indeed other, you know, small to medium associations across Europe. So I think it was a pity. But, you know, I've had lots of support from the from the Football Association of Wales, and particularly from Jonathan Ford, the, the chief exec. Um, so, you know, I'm optimistic that there'll be an, another opportunity at some point in the future to, to at least put myself forward for yeah. a major role. I wanted to return to the... the- coaching courses a, a little bit Laura and the impact that those are having um, within Wales I mean the you know the, over here in the states we've got coaches traveling back to Wales to partake yeah. in those in, in those courses um, could you talk a little bit more about the the sort of evolution of that and and the the process that really put started to put um, FAW courses on the map yeah, something we're all very proud of, obviously, is that, you know, our um, accredited courses, you know, both, well, all the way from pro license right the way down to the um, leaders awards, really, for people working in grassroots uh, football, are, are so well established and uh, have such a great profile and are so well regarded globally. I think that's really put us on the map, you know, if you, aside from coaching, actually, but it's related to it, you know, the grassroots um, validations that UEFA give to all of the associations, we're right up there with the gold standard, you know, which means we're in the same bracket as, you know, countries like Germany and, uh, and, and England and the best nations, really, in terms of grassroots development. And the two go hand in hand, because I think if you have a good, you know, a really good coach education portfolio, um, then it becomes a progression. So people do their C licenses and then progress all the way up to 
hopefully, you know, doing their A licenses and, and coaching at the very top level. It's not for everybody, of course. Some people want to drop out of the um, pathway, you know, depending on who they're coaching, where and how, and what their time and commitment is. But I think the very fact that, you know, we recruit people onto our coaches like Marcel Desai, you know, and Thierry Henry, and, you know, um, uh, some of the really, really top um, coaches from around the world. Uh, and I think that goes down to, first of all, the leadership of it from Oshan Roberts and uh, and lots of other people as well. You know, there have been a whole set of people, you know, too, too numerous to mention, really, who've put their backs into developing a really effective um, uh, uh, coaching portfolio. Carl Darlington is another one, you know, but, you know, I, I risk offending people I've missed <laughs> out with. Um, I, and I think that's that's superb. You know, we've got a fabulous reputation and we're attracting the best candidates. And of course, what that allows you to do is cross fertilize that and, you know, with your um, coach education program. Uh, but but I think, you know, it goes down to the fact that um, we know we're a small nation. We know we've got a small pool of both boys and girls, men and women to play. That means we've got to get those in the best possible shape throughout the pathway for boys and the pathway for girls. And that means we need a really big army of good, good coaches at every level. So it's in our own interest, of course, to improve coach Absolutely. education because it means we can coach our own. But but equally, it's a resource and a reputational benefit to have such great uh, people from the world of football, particularly ex-players, of course, who uh, uh, come to Wales to do their qualification, you know, and long may that continue. No, I, I totally agree. It's the the way it's developed, even in the relatively short time that I was I've personally been involved in, in coaching football and stuff is is incredible. When I first started, I coached a, a team when I was started coaching when I was nineteen, a team that were basically going to go under unless someone, anyone, volunteered to kind of do it. Yeah. And my kind of football leaders course in inverted commas that I went through the first time then, which would have been fifteen years ago now, was basically I went to. Um, a bar in Barry, basically, where a group of blokes sat around and basically said, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. You know, here's a few drills and a little booklet for you. Knock yourselves out. Uh, yeah. And that was that kind of done. And then a few years later, that progressed to, uh, like a, you know, these proper designated courses at the club. I coached at Sully Colts, they were then, because Sully Sports they are now, um, where someone came in and you were kind of sat down and we did a big classroom session uh, for two Saturdays, I think it was, and then part of the, you know, the second half of the session was actually going out and doing these little things and they were approaching it from, little, you know, this would be a great drill for little kids if you try it this way and the same drill can work for older kids. Just in that short space of time, maybe four or five years, the recognition of what needed to be done was obviously there and you know and again it's gone on even further from that now to, to the top level yeah, that we're absolutely. at now. and it's so important for the youngest children you know because if you take um what we know intelligence about children playing sport and children playing football particularly it's got to be uh, fun it's got to be enjoyable and it's got to be something that they feel they're learning and getting skills from. And the problem with old style football coaching, and we all you know, can remember this ourselves, you know, was if you were a good player, you'd get a lot of attention, you'd get a lot yeah. of touches on the ball. If you were a mediocre player, you'd get fewer. And if you were a poor player, you know, as in not on the same standard as the very good players, you'd probably only see the ball now and again. You know, you'd be lurking on at the back of the drill or on, on the wing. And yeah. of course, that puts kids off. And, and again, it does go back to the philosophy of, you know, the football development pyramid because we can't afford to put off girls and boys at the young age because who knows what kind of player they're going to be further down the line, you know. I don't buy this kind of academy approach, you know, some of the pro clubs 
uh, take where they hoover up every boy in the area who's any good at all, age five. You know, that's absolutely ridiculous because boys at five will not be necessarily be the boys who are, boys who are good at five will not necessarily be the boys who are great at ten. Yeah. You know, and it's even it's even more pronounced in the women's game, you know, where, where girls can be quite late developers. Mm-hmm. So so I think we've got to have the right coaches because if we put kids off at that age, not only are we losing them to just sport and physical activity and all the health, you know, disadvantages one has then but we, we're potentially losing players you know and, and we can't afford to do that in a nation of you know three million people no i totally agree and you, you, you see the growth in the last few years of the of the the age range uh, women's teams have, have really come on and that the, the yeah. kind of publicity and coverage they're getting and you're starting to see the benefits now of of people coming through and and, and, and people actually now playing for the full women's team which is is testament really to how good the coaching is and how much the program's developed and obviously it is having a real positive impact on the on the pitch as you know the last campaign showed yeah talking about positive impact i want to talk a bit more about your the various roles you've had in sports governance laura yeah um you were chair of sports wales during what was incredibly successful period um for the nation in terms of what was happening in in lots of different sports not just not just football obviously um what were the challenges around that role in terms of really pushing forward so many different um ventures during that time yeah, I mean, I get asked this a lot, you know, and I certainly don't take credit for, you know, the, the success that we had over the past decade, really, in, in in the sports that were most closely aligned to the work we did in sport worlds, because there was a really good team there, you know, when I, when I took over as chair. Um, and I think what I was able to do was really just offer some ambitious leadership to a, a, a group of individuals and an organisation that was starting to um, stagnate I think I don't think that's been unfair I think it, it hadn't had a change of leadership for quite some time you know at, at board or at executive level and I think it was a bit stale yet there were some really talented people there so it was it, you know if you do the analogy of a sports team a football team you know it was a team of great individuals who'd been playing for that club for so long under the same manager that they were doing the same things and yeah. probably you know felt they'd reached their peak but, but I think because, you know, I wasn't, um, I hadn't been in that world of sports governance before, other than, you know, having served on the board of UK Sport, I hadn't had a real leadership position in, in sport until I took over as chair of Sport Wales. I think I was quite fresh, really, and probably a bit naive, if I'm being really honest, you know, in that I thought, you know, there's no reason why we can't aspire to be in, you know, the best nation in terms of Commonwealth Games performance. We can't, you know, why we can't... Uh, we can't have as an ambition to be more successful than England in, say, a sport like cycling. Um, and so I, I went in with really high ambitions, but I was so thrilled that the people there, particularly the executive and eventually the board, as we changed the composition, um, embraced that ambition and really wanted to, you know, reach for the stars, I guess, is the best way of doing it. Um Lots of challenges with that, um, not least working with Welsh Government. Um, I found that quite frustrating, if I'm being really honest. And by the end of my period as chair, you know, I think I've just about had enough, you know. Um, And what I mean by frustration really is, uh, unfortunately, there was a lack of quality uh, in terms of officials that we dealt with. So 
they were very conservative with small C in terms of their ambitions and plans for sport. I never felt they really backed us sufficiently as a successful organisation. Um, in fact, they probably dragged us down at times because they were used to a very narrow uh, uh, profile of ambition for sport. And because we'd almost overperformed, um, they felt they didn't really need to champion us when it came to funding and, and so on. And that used to get me very, very angry, you know, because it felt like a one-size-fits-all approach to funding public bodies. Whereas my argument was, you know, give the money to an organisation that is not only doing good work, but actually has spin-offs for health and skills and economic development and education and social cohesion and all the rest of it. So I got very frustrated. Didn't feel we had the right political leadership either for sport, you know. Um, I felt like I was often a lone voice championing all of those real assets that sport can achieve. Um, a lot of lip service from government ministers, but it was very hard to actually get them to put their money where their mouths were and to actually fund us properly to do those jobs. So I think I was probably ready to step back by you know, the time I'd served two terms as chair of sportwares. But but having said all of that, it's still one of the proudest things uh, I've done, you know, and I'm I'm I look back at it with, you know, great affection, a really fabulous organisation with, with wonderful people within it. Um, unfortunately held back by by a lack of ambition from from the government and from its funding partners yeah um to to move back to your playing career um after kind of being uh, a, a key cog if you like in in getting that wales women's team going um you made your debut in a in germany as you said in a Chastening, I think, is the best word. Defeat is <laughs> a twelve-nil defeat. Uh, <laughs> yeah. defeat. Um, in 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 terms of what that kind of like, obviously, I was going to say what that felt like. I mean, I'd imagine I know what the answer to that question is. But in terms of, did it give you like um, an inspiration, if you like, to know what you therefore needed to to achieve? Like this yeah. is this is the yeah. bar sort of thing. No, I know what you're saying. Yeah, it did. I mean, actually, that was interesting. So I made my debut yeah, against Germany. Bielefeld. Um, and we were walloped, but but you know, put it in context, really. You know, Germany. I don't know. If, I think can't remember if they were world champions. They were certainly the best team in Europe at the time, and you know, probably one or two in the world. And we were a nation who never competed before. You know, we played one friendly, I think. So you know, you've got to get this in context, really. You yeah, know, absolutely. it was it was a David and Goliath um, uh, event. And and despite us losing, actually, you know, thinking back to that game, there were quite a few positives. You know, I, I did a, a, a man-marking job and I was put in for that reason on their top goal scorer. Um, and she only scored one goal. So there's a positive. Absolutely. You know, after the whole thing. Um, but, but no, you know, obviously we were well beaten. But I think it gave us something to, to judge ourselves on. Um, you know, we went on to play in Croatia and Switzerland. Although we lost those games narrowly, um, you know, we weren't far off their standards. So it gave us a picture of where we were and where we could get to, really. And I think it was chasing then, you know, for, for the uh, for the coach, who was Lynn Jones at the time, you know, former manager of Merthyr. Um, I think Lynn hadn't realised just how incredibly strong some of the international teams were. You know, why would he? He'd never coached a women's team before. He didn't really know the standards that were out there. Um, but, you know, Germany were a force to be reckoned with and they gave us a good lesson, you know, but I learned an enormous amount from that game, you know, and I, I realised just what I needed to do personally in terms of fitness and speed and technical, you know, uh, prowess to be able to play in a way that would, you know, get us closer to them. Yeah. 
What do you, can you remember what your first win was? Yeah, I can um, remember it really clearly. Um, and I think all the girls who were playing that day will remember it. It was a, I think it was when we beat Scotland uh, in the European qualifiers. It would have been the following season. And we played at uh, Leyden Park in Newtown. Um, and the, the girls I was playing with at the time, a lot of them are still involved in football, like Claire O'Sullivan, who's been involved with Jane uh, Jane Ludlow's yeah. coaching team, Kath Morgan, who uh, again, uh, you know, won, won over fifty caps for Wales. Um, and I can remember the just elation of winning the game because, you know, obviously we we come off the back of you know quite a few defeats over two two seasons. You know, it does take its toll. Whatever anybody says, we, of course we knew where we were in the journey to becoming a, you know, a g- good footballing nation. But I can just remember beating Scotland and just feeling like it was a massive weight off our shoulders. Really, you know, it felt like we'd we'd come of age as a, a team. Um, and and from there, you know, we went on to to win quite a few games whilst I was playing. You know, I mean, some of them were against small teams like the Faroe Islands. Um, but you know, we we beat teams like Belarus. You know, um, I'm trying to think who else we beat during my time. Uh, Northern Ireland. I think we beat the Republic right. of Ireland. So you know, we we had a few. You know, we had a few significant wins. And you know, as we said right at the beginning, uh, you can only you only have an opportunity to play at the time you have an opportunity to play, um, and whenever that is, it's the biggest honour that you can ever have. You know, to to pull on the red shirt and play for Wales. So. You can't dictate um, the standard of the game at the time you're playing. You can't dictate how many good players there will be or the coaching infrastructure, who you're drawn against in any group. All you can do is give your everything on the pitch. Yeah. And even though we lost a lot of games, you know, there weren't many players in that squad who didn't give every last bit of sweat and blood for, for the Welsh cause, really. So, you know, whatever, I think we should be proud of, you know, what we did to propel things forward. Was that your kind of your fondest memory in a in a Wales shirt, or you have? Is there anything else that kind of springs to mind? Well, being captain for the first time, you know, I think if you ask any player, obviously, you know, wearing the armband uh, is hugely significant, um, and and it was the kind of thing I'd sort of dreamt about as a child, you know, growing up. Um, I wanted a captain Cardiff City and Wales, you know. And, and when you put that in context, you know, I never believed that I'd be able to play, you know, in a, a team like Cardiff City or Wales because it wasn't something you could touch in the way that it was for boys or, or for girls growing up now. So to actually captain Wales and Cardiff City, you know, were hugely significant moments for me. Um, I can remember the game I captained Wales for, which was, uh, um, Gosh, I say that now, and I think it was against the Faroe Islands in Bangor. It was definitely in Bangor, but I think I'm pretty sure it was against the Faroe Islands. Um, and then, you know, I captained Wales quite a few times after after that, and every time it felt like a you know a huge honour and a, a great responsibility, but something that I could hardly believe I was doing really. Yeah. My uh, my last question on that, I, I, only because I saw when I was looking through this that you never scored for Wales. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I remember when we had a we had a conversation with Johan Roberts, and he said he could vividly remember the moments where he thought he was going to score and ended up not. Do you have a memory in your <laughs> mind of when you thought, "Oh God, I, like I should have put oh, that one away"? No, look, honestly, with all, I, I, it's important to put that in context because I, I was I played most of my games at sweeper at the back, for Wales. Yeah. Uh, we always played a back five, you know, because we were always a small nation, you know, up against a bigger, more powerful nation. And in theory, a back five converts to a potential attacking threat at key points. But 
there weren't that many games really where you know I could have come in front of my back four to play. You know? <laughs> so um, I, you know, I was really quite a fast player, you know, in terms of speed. So I was usually needed as cover for the defence. You know, the, the matter is, I very rarely went over the halfway line. You know, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and, and I'm joking. I mean, I did, but you know, I, I very rarely got into scoring positions. Yeah. You know, it wasn't really my responsibility and my duty you know we had some we had some really good forwards while I was playing particularly a girl called Louise Thomas who um, was playing for Everton at the time fabulous player you know really fabulous player and, and lots of others too but um, you know we, we left the scoring of goals to them so I didn't feel I missed out really by not scoring for goals <laughs> and being captain was probably yeah. significant enough for me. Was there, was there a player you ever played against who you thought like she is the one sort of thing. She's she's the best I've ever come come across. Oh yeah, quite a few. You know, um, I think about playing you know against the really good sides like like Germany, obviously, like like Switzerland, who were a good side at that time. Never played against England, which I was kind of disappointed about. Um, I mean, obviously there would have been a big gulf in standard at that time, but still, it would have been nice to test ourselves against uh, against England. But but Germany, um, there were some really fabulous players um, playing for them at the time uh, there was a woman, a woman if I'm right in thinking you know I might have got her name wrong uh, called, called Heidi Muller I think who was one of their record goal scorers um, and I marked her in fact in both games that I played against her fabulous fabulous technical player you, know, you couldn't take your eyes off her really um, and then there was a wonderful midfielder who was kind of ironically called Stephanie Jones. <laughs> you thinking she must have some more Welsh blood. Uh, <laughs> maybe she did. Um, fabulous player for Germany. She went on to manage the German women's side, I, I believe, All and right. has been involved in coaching since. You know, so there were some really top top players. You know that that I played against, and I think you know looking back, although although I kind of looked at them with awe, um, I never felt. Um, intimidated by any players and I think this is probably you know why why I was able to play so many times for Wales because you know perhaps I, I wouldn't claim for a moment that I was the best player in the Welsh squad or the Welsh team um, there were a lot of players that were much better than me you know in terms of technical ability um, but you know as a couple of managers said to me you know uh, you were always one of the first names on the team sheets uh, on the team sheets to play and, and I think that goes down to you know my kind of upbringing in sport where I wasn't ever really intimidated by playing players that were better than me you know I knew that my heart was you know big and I could cope with you know uh, uh, being up against technically better players I'd always be fit you know I took that very seriously you know because I think especially if you're a sweeper you know you need to be uh, you need to be agile and quick and mentally attuned and you can only be mentally attuned to the game if you're physically fit so I'd always turn up, you know, in good shape. Um, and, and I think I was um, very, very determined, really, you know. So you make, can make up for a lot, you know, if you, your mentality is right, really. And you can see that in women's football and men's football now, you know. It's it's not the players who are the most gifted, who play most times for their countries, you know. It's usually the players who've got other assets that are, they bring into the game alongside ability and technical prowess. Absolutely. Changing the... Tack a bit, Laura. I was reading one of your articles for Wales Online, the, the sort of 2018 review that you did where you talked about what angered, excited, moved, perplexed you last year. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's actually a great read in terms of a, a summary oh, of thanks. Welsh sport for the year. 
But I was wondering, just sort of turning that a little, what you're actually looking forward to in 2019? Yeah, I mean, I'm a really optimistic person. I mean, it doesn't sound like that when you read my articles because I'm <laughs> usually moaning and criticising things. But that's only because I want things to change. You know, I'm quite kind of impatient for change. And I'm, and I'm really passionate about Wales, you know, um, politically and societally, really, and, and sport in a sporting context, you know, because I think we've got such fabulous assets in Wales, you know, what, what it, wherever you look, you know, we've got people who are really energetic and driven and enthusiastic um we've got great talent really in sport and the arts and business and politics but, but it's being underutilized really and i think the reason for that is that we've become quite stale you know we've had the same people running welsh political and public life for a long long time you know and um we've developed a quite closed political and social culture um, so I'm ambitious for you know things to become more pluralistic. Um, that's one ambition that I have every year, really. I don't know if it'll happen in 2019, but it's certainly something I feel very strongly about. I think in sport, you know, I mean, I, I hope we can build on the, uh, you know, narrow miss in terms of qualification for the women's team. Um, you know, J- Jane has got a process underway there, and, and it, she's always described, Jane Ludlow, she's always described it as this, you know, had we qualified for the World Cup, it would have been well ahead of schedule, in truth. Yeah. So we know we know that the Euros are our big target. We know that there are talented players in the under-17s and the under-19s. 17s are a bit young. 19s, you know, we would expect a couple of players to graduate and they're starting to come through into yeah. our squad. Um, we're fortunate that we've been able to hang on to the likes of Jess Fishlock, obviously, Tash Hardin, you know, the girls were... Uh, hitting their 30s now, Helen Ward, you know, we need these girls around because, you know, you can't buy experience and everybody knows that, you know, in every squad you need a handful of wise old heads, really, um, who, who in the case of those three are as passionate as anybody I can think of about playing for Wales. So they'll help nurture the next generation. Um, I, I think we've got to qualify for the Euros uh, in England in 2021. Um, we've got a new head of women's football appointed a couple of weeks ago, um, a good friend of mine, Laurie Roberts, um, who has come from the FA, the English FA, yeah. but as you will tell from her name as well, um, <laughs> as, I, as I say to, to her regularly, this is a big promotion from you, having you know been, been with the FA and now coming to you know the Football Association of Wales. But no, seriously, you know, she, Laurie will, will work wonders, I'm sure, because there's good infrastructure, great support from the FAW. Um, Jane's a great manager. She's got really good squad of players to work with now. We know we're always going to be underdogs in any group, but you know I think we showed against uh, you know the likes of Russia um, and uh, England in the last round that we could certainly be there or there and about. So I think qualifying for for, for England twenty twenty one is a, is an absolute must now because that's a game changer. You know once you qualify, as we saw with the men in the Euros in twenty sixteen. Once you qualify, I think it changes everything for the sport, and, and that's what I'd be optimistic that we could do for the women's game, really. I totally agree. I, I think it, it would be such a missed opportunity at this stage with a mix of experience and, and youth coming through not to qualify, especially the, the, the big kind of wave of public support that it got uh, and the impact yeah, that it absolutely. had on so many people. Like it, would be, it would be a massive, massive shame if that didn't happen. And, you know, in looking forward to that, obviously the draw is coming up in just under a month now Um, you know it's uh, it's exciting times I think it's really exciting times you know and yeah you know as you said um, you get these moments in sport you know where you you hope that 
um, everything fits into place really. Um, and as I say, I think it would have been ahead of schedule if we qualified for the World Cup. Of course, we would have taken it. You know, gosh, you know, it would have been wonderful. But I don't think at the start of that campaign, you know, uh, we would have expected to be in the position where we were one game away from uh, qualifying for the World Cup. I think ambitions would be greater this time. I think there's a lot more experience of being in those situations. I think the Welsh public, you know, especially the football fans, but even sort of just mums and dads of girls who play club football realise just where the women's game is now. And I think if we start well, you know, we get really good crowds again supporting the, the girls and you know, they've got their real personalities, this group, you know, you'll, yeah. you'll know that from speaking to people like Jess, but they're proper personalities, you know, they've all got really good backstories, mm. they're articulate, um, you won't get a more passionate group of girls who want to wear the red shirt, you know, and I, I'm really proud of all of them, you know, because a lot of them I, I know from, you know, they came into the club, you know, my club, Cardiff City, when I was sort of on the, at the end of my career, and yeah. they were youngsters, so, you know, I feel very kind of protective towards them but equally very very proud of what they've done yeah I think that echoes the sentiments of everyone really doesn't it like the the pride in in what they achieved you know getting so close as well and some amazing performances like we were giddy watching that the the nil nil weren't we um yeah. like I think oh, we met, I think we called that our result of the year I think <laughs> didn't we um but yeah so you know it's it, it's fantastic and I, I really hope I really hope this is the time now on a wider theme, Laura, what what would you like to see for the development of women's sport more generally? What what do you think are the are the steps that we need to take to support each other better, perhaps? It's a big question, but I think my answer would be we have to really take stock of where we are in women's sport at the moment because I think we're in quite a perilous situation in some regards because so much has moved on. You know, if you take a kind of superficial glance at the profile of women's sport now, you see people like Alex Scott commentating on Sky and uh, BBC on men's games. Um, you know, we've seen uh, Vic, Vicky Blight, I think, did the first live commentary in the World Cup, first woman to do a live commentary. So you've got that on the media side. Then you've got the profile that particularly England have, because, uh, you know, clearly they're, they're more successful than us at women's sport at the moment. You know, they've qualified for the Netball World Cup, cricket, uh, rugby, football, you know. And, of course, success breeds profile and further success. Um, but, but equally, if you set all of that aside, I think we have big, big structural problems with women's sport generally. Um, I think there are not enough women involved in managing and governing it, as I said earlier. Um, the funding of it is inadequate. Uh, it's too amateur in a whole host of ways. So even when you have top teams like England Rugby Union, you know it, it's not unheard of, as has happened, for the RFU to suddenly pull the plug on the full-time contracts for the women players. Um, and we're nowhere near that, in truth, in, in, in Wales in terms of rugby. So, you know, we've got a long way to go in terms of just creating anything like a, a level playing field. And that's what I mean by a perilous or dangerous situation. At one level, everything looks really rosy, you know, and it, and it would be very easy to say, look how far we've come, because we have, you know, we've come a long way. But but there are still big risks attached to the further development of women's sport. Um, for me, you know, it's about a, st a kind of cultural problem that uh, unfortunately 
men who are involved in sport still, whether it's subconsciously or overtly, think of sport as being a male domain. So it, there's always a sense of kind of imposter syndrome when women are involved in sport. Um, and as a result, they have to work twice as hard, be twice as talented, um, uh, and put in much more by way of hours and professionalism to even be treated equally with men. Um, if you take football, you know, a critical take on football would be it's still a game that's run by older white uh, men who generationally probably don't think that women have the same uh, rights to be doing things in uh, in their sport. So I think we've got a long way to go, really. Um, and I would hope that we had more open and challenging conversations, you know, because we don't do anybody any good by suggesting that all is rosy in the garden, you know, because it patently isn't. There has yeah. been progress, but the progress is not enough and it's not fast enough. I absolutely agree. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's actually a life lesson in that yeah. as well, isn't there, in terms of having those difficult conversations and, um, you know, challenging people on things as well and not, and not, as you say, not seeing the kind of the sparkly rose-coloured side of things yeah. and just yeah. looking into that entirely. You know, I, I also say quite regularly when I'm talking about sport and women's sport to, to audiences, you know, I, I also say it's in sport's interest to do this because, you know, at one level you can say diversity is just about being fair. You know, it's about having a sport that's run by, uh, by a group of individuals who look more like the population than they currently do. So we'd have more black people involved, black and minority ethnic more people with a disability, more women, different age ranges and so on. Yeah, that's fine, but it's not just about that. It's actually about better decision-making for sport, you know, because if we're serious about getting girls playing, we need to hear from mums, you know, because mums still do the vast majority of decision-making around what their, their girls and boys, for that matter, do. Well, we know boys will naturally orientate into team sports, whereas girls don't. So, you know, we need to influence mums, we need to influence grandparents, we need to influence girls themselves. And the only way we can do that really effectively um, is if we uh, have women and girls who, you know, can communicate that voice in decision-making environments, you know. So it is for better decision-making. So in theory, it should benefit the growth of the game and the growth of sport more generally too. I think that is a very good place to finish. I think that's perfectly summed things up. Um, thank you very much for your time. We very, very much appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Laura. Thank you very much. Well... That was absolutely fascinating. She's genuinely fascinating to talk to, isn't she? Yeah, we had really a lovely is. hour. Um, if you don't know much about Laura, she's um, had such a, an interesting and kind of varied life. We've, we've, we've kind of touched on a lot of it there through the, the governance role she's had and, of course, her kind of influence on women's football. I think, from my perspective there, I think she was being overly modest about... The, the kind of influence and, and impact she's had on women's football. Yeah, I mean, I think we'd, we you forget that, I mean, literally in our most successful period, director of Sports Wales was a woman, and we, we should should have been and should be celebrating that yeah. a bit more. Uh, but also just the, the wider impact that she, and the colleagues she spoke about in fairness, she was very um, generous with sort of yeah. sharing the love no around points, her colleagues, yeah. um, have 
have steered Welsh sport amazingly well um, over recent years, and I'm I'm very glad that she's um, still involved in sports governance, as well as obviously her her day job at, at Cardiff University. Just a fascinating woman, and just we're very lucky that she managed to, you know cut a, an hour out of her very very busy schedule to come and chat to us so she just had a massively positive impact on just a huge variety of things football sport uh, women's sport politics in wales just uh, a very important person <laughs> to all intents and purposes thank you very much for listening there's been a little gap in uh, the amount of stuff that we've put out recently but hopefully with the uh, the men's internationals coming up, the women's draws getting underway, and obviously the conclusion of the of the season. There'll be a lot more output from us in the next coming weeks and months. So thank you very much for listening, and we will speak to you soon. Good night. Good night. Good night.